The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So then as we continue this meditation, I'm going to offer you a guided equanimity meditation. And we'll do it around one variation of the equanimity phrases. If you remember another phrase and prefer it, it's okay. But the phrase I'd like to offer is, I care for you, but I cannot make choices for you. I care for you, but cannot make choices for you. And as we go through the different people to do this equanimity practice towards, don't think of the phrase in black and white terms, like it's all or nothing kind of, but rather consider how in the relationship to this person that you know, how is the wisdom of this phrase applicable? In what circumstances is it relevant and helpful? And as you say the phrases and imagine circumstances where it's relevant, see if you can stay in touch with your caring of the person. So we begin by bringing to mind some person for whom it's easy to do this equanimity practice. Perhaps some person you don't know too well, some more or less neutral person in your life, an acquaintance, somewhere where you don't take their behavior and actions and situation too personally, you don't identify with it, with them. Person for whom you don't feel any particular pointed responsibility, unique responsibility for them. See if you can bring to mind such a person. As you have an image of the person or a thought or feeling for the person, see if you can open your goodwill to them. See if you can find a little bit even of yourself of warm-heartedness or goodwill or (laughs) kindness to this person. And maybe there are some circumstances where having the goodwill is not so easy. (coughs) Or perhaps there are circumstances where you can keep the goodwill, but where it's relevant to apply the wisdom of equanimity. So consider this person and then quietly repeat the phrase 
to yourself silently. And letting your, let yourself find your way into the circumstances where this phrase is wise, is useful. Where this phrase can actually help you keep your heart open. The phrase again is, I care for you, but I cannot make choices for you. I care for you, but cannot make choices for you. Gently say these phrases in your mind and stretch yourself into having greater equanimity, balance with this person. And then bring to mind a friend, some friend that you have, that you know pretty well, maybe, or connected to this person's life in some variety of ways. Think of a friend that you have. And as you bring this person into your heart, into your mind, Repeat the phrases in relation to this person, considering in what areas of your shared life, of knowing this person, that the wisdom of these phrases are relevant, are helpful. I care for you, but cannot make choices for you.
I care for you, but cannot make choices for you. How and what circumstances can this wisdom help you keep your heart open in the same time to stay balanced or stay free or stay equanimous towards your friend?
And then bring to mind someone who you feel quite close to. Traditionally, it's said to bring in a benefactor. And see if you can apply the phrase to this relationship as well. In what ways does the wisdom of this phrase support both your care for the person, but also your freedom, your independence, you're not getting caught, your equanimity about what's happening. I care for you, but cannot make choices for you. I care for you, but cannot make choices for you. And then finally, see if you can develop a little equanimity towards yourself. But you need to change the phrase now. Now you might say, I care for myself, but don't need to take personally everything I think. I care for myself, but don't need to take personally, don't need to identify with all that moves inside me. And in what circumstances is this helpful for you? I care for myself, but don't need to take it all so personally.
again to end this sitting. You can take a few slow, long, deep breaths, feeling your body. And when you're ready, you can open your eyes. So, Brahma-vihara practices, practices of meditation on loving-kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity, in some ways are quite different from mindfulness practice. Mindfulness practice, the mind is trying to see things as they are without any extra concepts or overlay of ideas on top of, without really using your imagination. With Brahma-vihara practice, your imagination is part of the practice, your ability to, cons- to consider and think. Um, but the question is, how do you use your imagination? How do you use your ability to think in such a way that it helps you get still, gets you focused, gets you present in a full way that's helpful in this process? And um, <clears throat> so one of the things that I found helpful is kind of what I said, is that if you make a, take these phrases, especially with equanimity, to be kind of absolute statements of how things are, probably something inside of you, something very reasonable inside of you is going to protest. And I kind of hope that's the case. But if you consider it more creatively, imaginatively, uh, in what, what circumstances, in, re- in relationship, my relationship with this person, my caring for this person, how, what circumstances would my caring flow better or more open or allow for my caring if I remembered this piece of wisdom? if I consider this as part of it. And uh, for some people it might be easy to do this, but the places <coughs> where it's often most needed is where it, uh, it's not easy to have compassion or loving kindness or something of joy towards someone. And it's kind of like when we can't do much else, uh, that's when the equanimity comes into play. Um, it doesn't make sense to do anything else, really. And... Um, so, so, you know, it's, it's this stretching yourself, you know, how could this be useful? How can I see, what circumstances, what way can I hold this person in this way that's helpful? Um, so I'm curious to hear, maybe from a few of you, we went through these categories of people, um, and I'd like to hear a little bit how it, what that was like. Um, the classic way of doing the equanimity phrases is you start with a neutral person. I think the idea of being a neutral person is easiest to have equanimity. And then you go to a friend, and then you go to a benefactor. Benefactor is supposed to be someone who you <clears throat> really have a lot of feelings for, so it's harder to have equanimity. But you, so you start with a friend, probably just a mild friend first. And you, the idea is to build up the equanimity, build up the understanding of how it's applicable in those relationships. So you start where it's easy, and then you slowly make it go where it's harder. So. Um, neutral person, friend, benefactor, and then it jumps to um, the enemy. And then, guess who's next? <laughs> you. <laughs> so, I don't know if this is actually following this principle that it's, you know, it's going from a place where it's most difficult, easiest to where it's most difficult, and you're, you're more difficult than your enemy. You're a difficult person. I don't know if that's it, or, or, or there's something else going on there, why it's difficult with it oneself. 
Certainly sometimes you have to change the phrases to make it work better when you have it towards yourself. So um, maybe it'd be nice to have a few words from you. We'll just let, hear a little bit what it was like. Um, I'd like to make a comment about the practice for oneself because I'm familiar with the other sayings and the other people, but I've maybe I wasn't paying attention, but I haven't heard that sentence um, for oneself. And it is a very practical, for me, useful phrase, which is, um, you know, my karma conditions and and my karma um, are what they are and um, that's how I interpret not taking things so personally so not taking things personally and, I mean sometimes it's really clear that equanimity is what's called for us I mean there are circumstances where we end up feeling very uncomfortable and it's kind of like you know you've you set the conditions up to pl- you set the conditions up and this is the consequence and now you've got to take the consequences. And so you realize that this is the consequences of my, the, the choices I made. I did something which wasn't so wise. And now it doesn't make sense to squirm or run away or, you know, or it doesn't make sense to kind of try to fix myself exactly. What makes sense is to be equanimous, balanced, and just feel the consequences, feel the impact. <clears throat> Someone else, please. What came up for you in that? For me, when I heard uh, you say, try to not take it all so personally and not identify, I just felt like crying because I felt like um, a a sense of release that I've been carrying around a big weight that I didn't know I was carrying around Mm -hmm. and that I didn't have, it didn't really serve anybody for Mm -hmm. me to do that. So help me kind of put that down and look at it differently. Great. So thank you. Nice to hear. Thank you. I was kind of struck by the different meanings for making the choices um, in that when I was saying that in reference to a friend, I got the fact that I wasn't going to take responsibility for their actions and that they were going to, um, I was going to allow them to do that or I wasn't going to take that on. But when I, I was doing that in relation to one of my children, I realized I wanted to give them the space to go ahead and live their life or make their choices and make mistakes and, and, and give them the life-learning situations that they can then go on and do it themselves. So it was, maybe you could say that responsibility, but I had a different feeling with giving them the space to be who they wanted to be. So with the first, if I understand you from your friend, you didn't feel responsible. For your kids, you do feel somewhat responsible that part, how you're 
how you're applying that responsibility is giving them the life, life lesson that they have to make their own choices and take the consequences. Yeah. Great. Um, it, it felt different to me to, <clears throat> to apply this to a benefactor uh, because when I thought of a benefactor, I was thinking of people who I feel support from, whether professionally or spiritually or, or financially. And I thought how I don't usually, my attitude is generally that I don't presume to make their choices for them. I feel grateful for choices they make that are supportive towards me. And I wondered how I could apply this equanimity. Um, and I think what I came around to was that if, for instance, they're not making choices that I might prefer, like if my boss isn't giving me the assignment that I wished I could have, to have some more peace with that. Um, so the, one of the choices that a benefactor can make um, is not to benefit you. <laughs> <laughs> Yet all the people I thought of were people who broadly and generally I, I feel are benefactors uh-huh. and do benefit me. Um, but, but, I, but, but, but if we're expecting it, we're a little bit hooked in. But if you, but if you have this idea of equanimity, you know, they're making their choices. Then you're also giving them their freedom maybe to not, not support you if they don't feel like it. Yes. I'm sorry if I interrupted what you, the, what you were saying. Did I interrupt you? N- no. Uh, actually, what you said was it articulated partly what I was mm-hmm. feeling. I, I think that was part of it. It was giving them a freedom to make choices that may not align with what yeah. I wish, would wish for myself, which was a different feeling than allowing, say, a friend or a child to make a choice which may not align with what I wish for themselves. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So in classic uh, Buddhist teachings, <clears throat> this idea of equanimity is closely connected to the Buddhist teachings on karma. And uh, karma is very much his teaching about choice and who is responsible for choice. That uh, the choices you make and the choices you live on are consequential. And certainly they can be consequential in the wider world. But karma is, uh, itself is a subset of the wider field of causality. So uh, uh, the impact that my actions might have in the wider world <coughs> is not, is not um, you know, an absolute thing. You know, I could say something unkind to someone and it turns out that that just was the best thing I could have done for the person because the person was a little bit more on guard and a little bit more kind of alert because of that. And so when they were walking down the street, they were just more ready to take care of, you know, to catch the next danger that was happening, right? A silly example, right? But, but maybe hopefully you get the idea. Uh, you don't know the consequences. Um, and, um, but the, the, the karma, stream of karmic consequences is a much narrower subset of the wider stream of, uh, or wider field of causality. And it's, I think it's probably fair enough to call it psychological causality. And uh, there, the Buddhist tradition says there's a much more one-to-one correspondence. That um, if you choose and act in particular ways, 
then there's a psychological impact that it has on you. So if you act on intentions of greed, it has psycho- it'll have a psychological impact on you. You can't get away from that. And how that psychological impact plays out into your life, it might have impacts in, you know, in the physical world and the world around you, but it might remain in the psychology also. If you act on intentions of generosity, it'll have a different impact. And there's, there's going to be an impact. You don't get... So the, the teaching in Buddhism is kind of pretty absolute about this traditionally, meaning you don't get away with anything. <laughs> I mean, you might get away with your friends. I mean, they, may not, they might not notice. The world might not notice. You might get away, you know, in a conventional way. Who knows? You might. But, you'll, but the karma never get away from it. Your karma goes with you. The karma fought, continues. And so um, one way or the other, you have to at some point face the consequences of your choices and your actions. And no one else can do that for you. And no one else can make choices for you. Other, you can't really make choices for other people at that psychological level. So like for your kids, you know, you can make all kinds of choices for them at the external level and hope that they can learn from that, hope that they can uh, be healthy and happy and all that. But, you know, there's no guarantee that all the best parenting advice that you ever try to live on, <laughs> try to, you know, practice, is going to result in, in perfect kids. <laughs> uh, so far, I haven't seen the perfect kids. <laughs> but maybe you have the perfect kids. But, <laughs> you know, the, but um, the... Um, the, um, um, but certainly you can have an effect on your kids and responsibility, but um, there's something very significant about the choices everyone, including the children, make for themselves and how that people have to face up to that or face them or understand them for themselves. And there's something... If, so in Buddhism, traditionally, it's understanding this that is a very important condition for being equanimous in our social relationships in our social relationship, in the relationship we have to other people. So, what do you think of that? What are your thoughts about that? What are your protests? What are your re- sense of relief? What do you think about that? Does it make sense? What do you, what's your thoughts, your questions? See, there's mics. Um, I'll try to keep it sort of simple, but this is something I've been practicing with, um, uh, just the use of the phrase uh, that my happiness will depend upon my actions and intentions, not upon a wish or a will. And I have been working with it within my own psyche and my own psychological state, and I'm really just starting <laughs> to work with it, but I, I'm finding it actually really liberating in the sense that it's giving me more choice. Mm. And I don't think I can articulate it really well, but something I've been working with it on, I, would, I love the idea of having nice good night sleeps, but I'm sort of looking at what are the causes and conditions that produce that, and what are the causes and conditions that tend not to produce that, and then there's the, there can be the swirling of the brain saying, oh, I really want to sleep well tonight, or oh, I'm not going to sleep well tonight, or whatever it might be. But all that is not, that's not um, 
that's not going to affect <laughs> my wish to sleep well, for example. It's not going to affect whether I do. It's what the, my actions are, what my intentions are. And to actually see it as it is, if you will, then it allows me to work with it mm-hmm. and to apply skill to it, not to be caught up in the swirl of how I want if it's only wishful, if it's only wishful thinking, then you're the, then you're going to be the victim of circumstances. And of course, in that situation, the more I might—I'm sort of making this up a little—but the more I might be thinking, "Oh, I want to sleep. I want to sleep," or "I'm not going to sleep. I'm not going to sleep." Those are actually causes, conditions that are probably undermining sleep. a nice night's sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, but seeing that, seeing the simplicity of it, in a sense, uh, and it's not a bad thing. It's just the way it is, and so then you can work with it. Great. Great. It's wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, I, um, I really found that valuable, the differentiation you were making between um, the, ran- the unpredictability of the results of your actions. Sometimes, you know, it's, I find myself measuring the merit of my actions by the results, but what you said, you know, really, so that the inescapability of the psychological consequences just was it's very clear that the quality of the intentions is really the bottom line. And um, especially when I'm, like, dealing with, like, complex decision trees at work on very complex situations where, of social situations where people are making decisions and based on other people's thinking and sometimes you just think oh well if it turns out okay then I guess everything was fine but that's not there's a subtle much deeper level which is just very clear now after that appreciated that great great thank you So uh, what he just said just made me think of a line that the opposite of failure in your life is not success and vice versa. So that somehow relates to me with what you said of not taking it so personally. So if you do fail in your decision-making, all right. But if you succeed, all right, too. Um, You just take the next step. Yes, and then if I may, I mean, it's a little, say, a different, different point, which is I've made other places and times, but that um, what are we succeeding with? And what are we failing in? So um, uh, if, if the intention is to try to benefit someone's life, and we failed at benefiting them because we didn't have enough, like my, you know, you know, we didn't have enough that's good, so we needed to help them with. Um, so we might have failed at the... But the intention, we tried to act on the intention, and the intention became stronger. The intention to serve someone, to be, to be generous, got stronger. So we measure, do we measure success by the external consequences? Or do we measure success by what happens, how we develop and grow inside? So you could, you could, work, you could put a tremendous amount of work into a company, you know, for example, at work, put years and years of effort into the company at work 
and the company could fail. And have you, has all your efforts failed? No, because perhaps because everything you did at that job, you did with the spirit or the attitude or the intention to be generous and wise and loving and friendly to the people around you. And you actually became more generous and more friendly um, over the 20 years you worked at the company or however long, even though the company failed, right? So I think you get the point, right? So what, do you, what are we measuring? We measure success and failure. And the karmic measurement is not about the external world, but it has to do with psychology and how we grow and develop. Well, I don't know if you guys are disconnected to this or whether it's quiet because it's too connected, that <laughs> you're thoughtful and engaged, or, but I'm, I'm getting ready to maybe switch gears. <clears throat> I have a question. Yeah. Um, social relationships, um, social relationships are also relationships with a spouse then we also talked about benefactors. So obviously there is mutual, hopefully there is mutual support. If we don't, if we get in situations where, how how can we disengage from not expecting our spouse, let's say, to support us or we support them? um, And still stay in equanimity. That's, you know, uh, I, I don't, I'm not sure. It's a big topic, so I don't know where to pick it up. But let me offer this and see if this is meaningful for you. Um, it's, it's sometimes easier to be equanimous in relationships with significant others or anything, any situation at all. It's easier to be equanimous if uh, you're confident you can hold your ground. So I can imagine in a, in a you know, partnership with someone, you know, generally partnerships have agreements. Usually it's understood that, you know, that there's certain kind of agreements about how you're going to be together. And so you could say, you know, you can be completely equanimous and said, look at the person in the eye and said, you know, this is not acceptable. You know, we agreed to be monogamous. And you're not. You know, and you're, you're holding your ground. You're going to hold, you're going to say, and this is, you know, there's a consequences. We have to talk about this. We have to deal with it. You're not going to sit there and just be, oh, I'm a Buddhist now. And, <clears throat> you know, it's all okay. And he's making his choices. And... <laughs> <laughs> You know, and I can't be responsible for those, and <clears throat> you know th- that wouldn't work. But so the idea of confidence, being confident that you can speak up, that you can say something, you can hold your ground. I think it's a lot easier to be equanimous. But here, meaning equanimity, meaning uh, you don't contract, you don't get tied up in knots, you don't get anxious. You just you're there in a full, clear way, and say, hey, "Wait a minute, let's talk about this." Is, it, is this relevant? What I'm saying, or yeah, it touches on it. Yeah, it is. Okay, great. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> I was just curious on what you thought on the role of ego in 
this, uh, especially when um, I'm trying to get somebody to do something and like there's a lot of care, but there's also an overarching like need to be right, like on or what I think is right or some view that I want to put on somebody uh-huh. else. Well, that, I hope that that's what the mindfulness practice can help with, is we can understand the different motivations and tensions that are behind our actions. And so when there's clinging or conceit or a need for approval or a need to create an image, that's maybe, we can really see how that's operating. We're not unconscious about it. And then hopefully we can be wise about it. And uh, if it's not a wise, thing, wise approach or uh, doesn't, not conducive to a peaceful life, then hopefully we can um, let go of it. And, uh, but it's not so easy. So a big part of mindfulness is to turn around and look at these things really carefully. Okay. So I have in mind that uh, we're going to do, you're going to do an exercise. <laughs> but uh, do you want to just, uh, it's, it'll be, you'll be energized by this. Uh, uh, so um, you, you don't necessarily need a break, but would you like to have a break to go for before, like 15 minutes before? Just, we've been here for about an hour. Or would you like to just, you know, go right in? Take a break? That's what I hear. So let's start again in here at 2.30. And then we'll do a little bit somewhere energetic for exploring equanimity.